What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In season two, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now your host, award-winning architect turned entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is Anthony Pellegrino. He is the head of hotels for Ash, New York City, a real estate company whose work stretches from developing hotels and residential buildings to design, to staging, and creating products. They also manage a number of the properties that they own. The company is based in Brooklyn, and its completed buildings are in Providence, New York, Baltimore, Detroit, and New Orleans. I've had the pleasure of staying at their Dean Hotel in Providence several times and recommend that to listeners uh, to check out if they're in the area. Today, we'll be talking about the Hotel Peter and Paul in New Orleans. Uh, In this $20 million project, Ash New York City reimagined a campus of buildings once owned by the Catholic Diocese into a 71-room hotel with three F&B outlets, an event space, and a courtyard. We will take a broad view and talk more about how the hotel operations and social justice broadly overlap. So thank you so much for being here with us, Anthony. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So uh, let's dive right in. So, Anthony, you aren't new to hotels by any kind of stretch of the imagination. <laughs> so tell us about your... Embarrassing, <laughs> as I blush, right? Yeah. So tell us about your career in hospitality before Ash and what you learned along the way. Yeah, I joined hotels back in 2002 as an executive chef and then really kind of worked my way through brand identity from Sheraton to W to certain cities and along the way also through the ranks and ended up in Atlanta where I was working for an area managing director, overseeing a renovation, working as a POA, helping open uh, pre-opening assistant. So my uh, lingo there, helping open some of the other W's down there in Atlanta. And I got to come back to New England where I'm from and open W Boston. I was with Starwood for you know, almost 10 years. And then it was time to kind of do something new and do something fresh and and do something that wasn't publicly held. (laughs) And when you say publicly held, I'm guessing that means that there is a certain amount of driving in the same lane without a lot of variation. Is that what you're... Yeah, I think there's a lot of pushing for stockholders sometimes on, and sometimes that can be done on the, the backs of others. So I think it was time to, you know, take my leadership and the hatchet I created over the years for Red and do something else. And so you mentioned you're from New England, you're from Providence specifically, right? Yes, I am. Okay. And that's actually where you met the owners of Ash New York City. So tell us about how you all crossed paths and how those first conversations went. Yeah, you know, very, very Providence, right? Five degrees of separation, Providence has three. 
So I was still working in Boston. I was living in Providence. My next project after W Boston was supposed to be in Providence with Starwood and that fell through. And, you know, just traveling in and out, sometimes late nights, I got to meet up at a local neighborhood restaurant. I could have a glass of wine, a bite to eat, and, and then be a few blocks from home. So really got to talk with those and friendly with those folks who were supposed to be the first restaurant in this secret hotel that was being built in Providence. And after a while, I'm getting to learn that project. really wanted to throw my name in the hat and meet some folks and do something a little more organic. And that's really how it, how it started to come about. And the Top Secret Hotel that you mentioned, it was a, a building that was uh, empty for a long time. It was infamous. The city had closed, which folks remember as the Sportsman Inn, which was really a strip club on the bottom and a brothel up top, one block over from the convention center. That would qualify as mixed use, right? Uh, in that case, yeah. <laughs> yes, 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 it would. Um, you know, I think we, we always say club and brothel because it, it gives a nice ring to marketing, but it was really a blight on the city. The city had forced it closed in 2010, and we decided to do it in 2013. So having this iconic building and really wanting to change the the juju of it, and it was such a a center of downtown, I thought we can still make it a center of downtown or down city if you're from Providence. Yeah, I think that's one thing that is particularly unique about it is its location in the center of the city, amazing access to public transportation. A number of really great restaurants and bars nearby. And your background is as a chef. So that's like the particular perspective that you brought to your career in hospitality. And I think because of that, F&B is a big part of the the Dean, the Providence, the Siren Hotel, and in Detroit, and then the hotel, Peter and Paul, which we'll be uh, talking about today. Could you talk about how you see restaurants and bars and the clubs in your hotel uh, shaping the look and feel of the entire development? Yeah, F&B is so important. We always say, you know, hotels, the room operations make your money, but, you know, your F&B really helps define your culture. And I think Providence was a bit easy. Our CEO, Ari Heckman, grew up in Providence. I lived two blocks from where he grew up. You know, that's how small it is. But that place is a little bit easier for us, and and we knew who to talk to and who we wanted to bring in. Going to cities like Detroit, and, and particularly Detroit, even more so than New Orleans, with all the development happening there, You didn't want to be a poser, really, right? You really wanted to find out and be ingrained in this renaissance that was happening. You just didn't want to be the kids from New York. And I think that was super important. So really trying to find the right people doing the right things that were part of the community was super exciting. You know, I I laugh, you know, I send the culture vultures out to do it, but we were able to find a lot of neat people doing really cool things and not all of them had the money to do it. So really going out and then finding investors or finding different programs like Match Detroit that were out there to help some of these folks come to life with their first brick and mortar or maybe their second was really, really exciting. And I think that was so important. In New Orleans, a bit different, you know, the Bacchanal crew, to us, they were just the right people. We've got this amazing building. We really wanted to have this high-low effect. So we were really accessible to all. So yeah, I think it's super important in who you pick. And moving forward, it's kind of like the hotel piece, why we manage ourselves. Our next project, which is in the historic Latrobe building in Mount Vernon in Baltimore. We're going to take our shot at running that food and beverage. To clarify then from what you've described as the previous hotels, the role that you played was defining the look and the feel, but they actually were operated by a third party. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So designed by Ash, NYC, um, kitchens laid out by myself, stuff like that. And then really trying to find the correct F&B 
when you get these boutique hotels, everybody's about being local in the neighborhood and where they do this scratch surface research and they try to become part of the city. And, and I, I just feel like that's incorrect. I think particularly the project in the Siren in Detroit, there is a level of coordination between all the different outlets that help make the F&B experience in that hotel quite seamless. Could you talk a little bit about what your experience was like with that? Yeah, one, it was finding kind of the right folks, right? So having a 30-seat, I call it a destination lounge, everybody hates that, but this, you know, this really candy bar that's really like focused bar in the center of your lobby, that's something to, to reconsider next time. You really did have to start to coordinate. It was so small and it really kind of felt exclusive and really had to go out of our way to make it inclusive with one, the other operations around us, the lobby itself is, is stunning and beautiful and making people feel comfortable in that lobby. People be able to book online in the lobby to sit in certain areas, I think was another piece to help people not feel so excluded from this small, well-designed bar. So I think that was a big piece of kind of that first floor. I call it like the, a, a sensory multiplex, if you will. It's just the second floor diner. It's a high-end candy bar. And I think particularly what you're describing is a very good entree to the Hotel Peter and Paul. Uh, so it's located in the Marigny district in New Orleans. And talk to us about your first impressions of New Orleans in this particular uh, neighborhood. Yeah, my first impression of New Orleans was working in Atlanta, actually, back in 2006 when Katrina happened and taking in a lot of those folks who were displaced and working in our hotels at the time, their W's and Sheridan, there was a lot of Starwood stuff there. So that was my first really thought and look into New Orleans. And it was, it was a bit harder seeing folks who've been displaced, trying to resettle in and being part of your workforce and, and managing that. So going to New Orleans, maybe I wasn't as open-minded. I was wondering what it was like again and what that workforce was like and, and how they overcome it X amount of years later or kind of what has been left behind because there's always some someone or something left behind. And then we pulled up to Hotel Peter and Paul, which we, is just this amazing complex of buildings. And I think my first impression was we're in a neighborhood. There are houses across the street from us. Literally, right across the street. Literally. There's a church here that was built in 1861 that still has the stained glass windows and now frescoes in it. This church, to me, was part of this neighborhood. And the school had closed 20 years, 15 years before, I forget. But the church was open for a long time and people congregated there. Um, and when it closed and it was becoming a hotel, that neighborhood was wondering and we understood that. And I think that was a big piece of really then getting to New Orleans and understanding this neighborhood of the Marigny and understanding the neighbors. They still wanted a place to gather. They still wanted a place that was for them. And I think we did that. We made sure the doors were open. We, that neighborhood to me was, was one of the first times, you know, usually you go in, but it was one of the first times we set up a blog to talk with neighbors about construction and letting them know what was going on. It was pretty much like an OAC meeting at the neighborhood, but they loved it. And I think what is particularly unique about that approach is thinking of what is the other option. The other option would be to do a rather anonymous or um, a restaurant or a bar that doesn't incorporate or doesn't physically seem open to the surrounding area. And then everyone that's there is basically just tourists that don't know the area that well anyway. And I think a lot of what, for example, the way that I, I travel and the way my friends travel is a certain curiosity about the place 
that we're going to, and not just as a check the box. I saw this, I ate there, I drank there, now I can move on to the next place. Yeah. And when you get to interact with those locals too, they work as a concierge. When they're inside and they're meeting someone and, and there's a connection made, people are valued and they're, they're, they they become insiders too, right? Go here, check this out. Where are you going tomorrow? Oh, and they know. It's free labor in many ways, <laughs> so, some aspects, right? But it's part of culture building, yeah. So the hotel you mentioned, it's on uh, Burgundy Street and it's uh, amongst really stunningly beautiful low-rise and some mid-rise wood frame and brick buildings. And you see echoes of those materials and that type of attention and detail, particularly with millwork in the the church itself. Could you talk about some of the design inspiration that you took from the surrounding area, the neighborhood specifically? Yeah, I mean, the building's beautiful, and it was probably one of the easiest ones to do just because it is so beautiful. The church itself was really just don't screw it up type thing. It really was. I mean, we took the pews out, we repaired some plaster, faux finished it, we washed it. We had one missing stained glass window that we kind of, we didn't want to put a faux stained glass window in. And so we just kind of put the amber glass, which shows in the church and other places, just to kind of be like, that was a stained glass window at one point. And really put in some HVAC music system, some water closets and, and walked out of that. There was respect to like, don't mess this up. You're not that good. You're not going to be, you know, that important. No, you're just not going to be. It's stunning. And and when you sit in the courtyard outside and and you're having a cocktail there and and you look up and your backdrop of those stained glass windows in that church, I was just there maybe about a month ago and it still gets me. And uh, so you described the the state of the church and there's actually three other buildings associated with the complex. Could you talk through the other buildings? Yeah, a schoolhouse, a rectory, and, and a convent, and along with the church. So we use the church for event spaces. It's a, it's a great wedding and also community events. We do a lot of artist events in there, making sure the community is involved, community yoga and stuff like that. So it's, it's open to the public. The schoolhouse, again, just amazing staircases. One of my favorite parts is the old auditorium. They had a little stage in there, and we thought, oh, great, another piece to work with. We put rooms on the stage, and we had a, an amazing local painter, Anne-Marie, come in and, and do this really faux stage painting on the stage. So it still looks like a, a stage, but there are rooms there. And the stage is still there. And we set the open auditorium up as you know, almost like a second lobby, you know, if you will, a place where people can go up and work or just hang out or bring a cocktail or people in those rooms. I think that was like one of the, those other special kind of things in that you find and, and you work with. You don't decide to like do something different. You're like, there's a stage here. It's theater. Let's keep it. How do we do that and make a guest room? So there was, some of my favorite rooms are there. I stay in the, on the stage all the time when I go in the same room and I come out of that room and Technically, I'm on stage, right? You know, it's, it's really neat. Convent and rectory, more rooms, part of house space. Finding rooms like Mother Superior's room, right? Like Mother, there was a Mother Superior on... That was uh, the headmistress, I guess? Yeah, was yeah, she was on property back in the day and had her own room. And deciding that we wanted to make that room super special because of that. Calling our joint venture partner in New Orleans, Mother Superior. I've called her that now for five years. That's the new, new baton. So you described a, a number of really important public spaces. Besides the F&B, there's a, the sprawling lobby, there's a courtyard. Could you give uh, listeners an experience of as you walk in the hotel, what is it that you're seeing? And what what is like ahead of you to the side, to the left? You know, I think when you, 
you know, it depends how, you know, how you're arriving, but you know, there's a beautiful piazza in between the schoolhouse and the rectory and the convent. So you drive into this beautiful piazza. There are rooms on the side that open up right to the piazza. So you can sit outside on a you know table, have a cocktail right there. Sometimes we do dining out there. The schoolhouse is I mean, the church is obviously amazing. The schoolhouse, I, I love walking in, and, and the first thing I see is the grand staircases. Landscaping, the landscaping is so lush. That was one of the things that I, walking around New Orleans, that I, I really fell in love with. And, and we do a good job at that hotel of really taking care of the grounds. It's a beautiful place to, to walk around in. And there are times you, you don't even have to leave. There have been times I've, I've been on property and, and hadn't gone to go anywhere else because it was a short trip. So in that situation, given that there's so much free flow between all of these public spaces during the pandemic, how did you manage all of that? Were there certain areas that then were, were like closed off or was there sort of limits to how many people could come through? Yeah. So, yeah, I kind of hate that because people were still, you know, even with all, we didn't really close. We did our best to protect people, but we didn't try to close too much off. People are still paying you know, money. They're still looking for an experience. Obviously, with labor and stuff like that, we did try to block people. But, you know, in a place like Peter and Paul that is has a schoolhouse, a rectory, a convent, and a church, I think at one point we counted, we have like 25 different room types. So we kind of scaled them down. But when someone books a certain room type, sometimes they're in a, they're only in another building. So we really tried to keep as, as much open as we could. That's given the emphasis that you have on the, the experience of your guests that are there. The finishes are a huge part of that as well. And the particular color scheme of the muted greens, blues, and yellows. Could you talk to us about the process of selecting that scheme and the materials, some of the really special materials? So so no, I, I cannot. Uh, and I will explain it. So with Ash at Heart does a lot, but Ash at Heart is a design company. And their design team, I always say, I'm, I said it before, but, you know, I'm an internal guest. I get excited when I start to see what's next. I think we were talking the other day or earlier today about, you know, I just got shots of the, the new hotel, you know, that, you know, walking through. Really, when it comes to the design piece and stuff like that, my feedback is really thinking about CapEx budgets. It's thinking about labor. My joke is design the hotel for housekeeping. And everybody laughs, but if housekeeping can go around, do an efficient job, enjoy doing their job and not break their backs doing it, we're on track to something special. So really, when it came to Peter and Paul, I was worried about how high the bed off the ground. One, because one, I know the eyesight, right? We want to make sure our bed's clean and, and really how a housekeeper has to clean that. The surfaces, making sure that whether it was the terracotta or, or the, the glazed tile in the bathroom or glass, I'm always wondering how many different cloths, how many different cleaners, like, like how hard am I making this? How hard are we making this for someone to do their job? So that's really when I think about design, that's how I think about it. So when I say, you know, they were thinking about it for sure. So from that perspective, given that when you would visit the hotel there would, in Windows in production, there would be a lot of those aha moments that you had in terms of being that internal guest. Are there particular like certain tiles or certain finishes that you, when you saw, you just felt, wow? Yeah, I think it was all pretty wow. I think when we went in, you've got those tall windows, all the ceiling windows, and the bathrooms are extremely special, right? You've just got these giant rooms that are, give you so much height and, and, and so much freedom. That was really nice. I enjoyed the beds. You know, they're the post beds, and I enjoyed that I was part of making sure that we could clean underneath them properly. Believe it or not, it was something that was very important to me, and I still find it special. It was pretty neat. So you um, mentioned that you kept a close eye on the CapEx budget because... 
when you're doing a, a bespoke hotel, it's easy for things just to go with with the budget. So uh, a lot of the sourcing of the finishes uh, came from estate sales from across New Orleans. There's also materials that came from Europe as well. Uh, given that you had so many sources of materials and there's, literally, as you said, 25 different types of rooms, what were some of the ways that you looked to control and manage the CapEx as well as the operations procuring all this? Yeah, I think the first piece is making sure you have the right caretakers on property. I think it's is very important having people who kind of understand, for lack of better terms, the brand you created there or what you created there and make them ambassadors to it. We hired a maintenance person who is amazing, but we hired from an antique store in the French Quarter to make sure that obviously anytime you buy a vintage lamp or something, everything needs to be rewired, right? Everything needs a different certification to it. Utilizing the home office, making sure that we had an inventory in, in place that we could put through there, setting up. You know, we just kind of set up our calls and set up our inventory so folks can, you know, go on, log in, see what they have available to themselves and just making sure that it's kind of always fresh. But again, empowering the folks on property, right, to know the materials we use, to know who we use it, to be able, you know, to, to refinish things. So a lot of it is in, in many ways not a giant conglomerate. It's very mom and pop. I'm going to take a break here to let our listeners know that we'll be having on a guest later this season that we're incredibly excited about. It's the president and CEO of the New York City Economic Development Corporation. So one of the largest uh, managers of real estate in the city of New York. She was appointed to this role by Mayor Bill de Blasio. Subscribe to the podcast. You don't miss any of these interviews, either with Rachel or any of our other guests that we'll be having on in season two. So you develop and operate hotels. Why do you do that rather than hiring a third-party operator or just selling the hotel after you develop it? I think it started, well, job security, right? And obviously, right, it's the, as an operations person. But no, it really started with the dean. I don't think Ash ever really thought they were going getting into hotels. They found that sportsman in this very special building. Certainly, Ari being from Providence, CEO of Ash, and growing up there, knew how important that building was and really wanted to turn it into something. I think as, you know, it started to develop, they thought we we can't hand this over, right? There's a piece like, is there anyone special enough to to take this on, to to think the same way we do? Hence where I stumbled and, and was like, you know, I will be the caretaker of this. I will open this. I will put it in the right way. They're not hoteliers. They weren't hoteliers. No one understood PMS systems and, and door lock configurations and revenue management systems that we built. We built from scratch. We just didn't get one and plug it in. Uh, we built them. And that hotel being, you know, that special, we were nailing down the carpets and mopping the floors. And I think at that point, it was just, we just couldn't let it go. And became the caretaker of it and, and ran it for three years. And they thought, wow, this is really cool. Let's do another one. And then one turned into three very quickly. They had been talking about Peter and Paul, but they had purchased Peter and Paul and had it designed and were really looking for kind of construction loans at that point. And then the Wurlitzer building in Detroit came along and stuff was going so fast. And just so happened that we opened the Wurlitzer second. So we really went from one to, to three very quickly and grew up pretty fast, pretty fast. But and then now here we are. Now we're trying to figure out what that looks like. It's, it was very organic. It wasn't, you do have people who are thinking about design, thinking about operations and thinking about the people who work in our hotels and the people who stay at our hotels at, at a very micro level. 
Yeah, I think that definitely, I would imagine, is one of those particular challenges because as a developer of historic properties, I think I've come to realize that uh, if I schedule out a year and a half, it's actually three years. So just 2x everything, just 2x everything. But I think particularly with what you're describing, it seems like there is there is a recipe on how to do this. This idea of uh, identifying a particular location and a particular property that has enough character, but also has enough uh, meat on the bone to actually be able to do something with it. Then being able to create this particular look and feel that uh, has enough uh, creativity and independence and uniqueness, but everything isn't precious. Like there's a certain amount of repetition to things and then being able to operate well from there. Yeah, I think I think that's the the repetition piece right now is operation. We're getting there more and more. But um, again, when you find these, you know, we call them exciting. Some people call them secondary markets, if you will, at the time or, or whatever. And I just think we found exciting places. Some a story that we had heard or someone we had talked to said we needed to go somewhere to visit something and check something out. And and that's really how organic it was. I think now we try to be a bit more strategic, create a spreadsheet, and there are people looking at places. But yeah, we'll get to repetition at some point, I think, and we'll have to. I mean, we do in the operations standpoint, we know we can go in and take over pretty much anything. And we have the systems in place. We're, we've built them out so many times now that we go from there. But I still think design and creating something unique and, and special. I don't want too much repetition in that, right? I want something that's unique to the space. I want a place that uh, people want to go to and, and be in, right? And people love to be in a great space. And I think the what you've talked about so far is this, this idea of repetition and standardization in the entire building maintenance process. And I'm really curious specifically about the, the amount of leeway and room that you give your staff to be able to solve problems the way that they would like to. So for example, when I was at the Dean Hotel, there was an incredible amount of independence. It seemed that you allowed your staff to be able to say things and give their opinions and provide personal input. That seemed very different than any other hotel that I'd been to. Could you talk about how you inject creativity into that process as well? Yeah, we just talked about kind of going into these neighborhoods and finding these special buildings and these special neighborhoods and understanding the neighborhood and the neighbors. Well, those are the people I want to work at the hotel. The dean in particular, there there weren't a lot of hoteliers working there. People working the front desk were hairdressers and they were DJs and, and they were drag performers and they were all something else. They were all some, but they all lived by the hotel. They all hung out at the hotel. And I think that was something, again, that was important. These people became, like I said, concierge. They came in, they become ambassadors of the hotel. They become ambassadors of their neighborhood, of their community. And I think that's important with hiring, right? I want to find unique that are doing just amazing things. And I want to learn about them and I want to understand who they are and, and know what they do. And I think when you do that and you bring people in and you give a freedom within framework, right? Hotels, let's not overthink it, right? If I... I check you in properly into a clean room. That's the correct room for you. I check you out and your bill's correct. We get those things now, Pat. The rest, we can really now start to create a scene for you or an environment that you want to be in or an experience during your stay. So there is framework that we need to, there are things that we need to do properly. But again, having people, if you've booked a small room and come in and you've got all this luggage, I'm looking at you, I know that room is not for you, right? I don't, God forbid someone has to call a manager to solve that problem. You know, I'd be, I'd be heartbroken and be heartbroken. People are smart. People are intelligent. People, people know their job. So given that you foresee the human interactions being a key part of hospitality going forward and that you have 
a wide variety of types of people coming to the hotel, many of whom are for rather as employees, many of whom don't have a hospitality experience before. Give us a, like a, a window into what your training process is to get these staff to be able to be those ambassadors that you want them to be. Yeah. So again, the first piece is find the right talent. The second piece is making sure that we're providing a great workplace for them. You know, that they can come to a place where they can try to make a proper living, that they can have the right health and medical benefits. It's a place of, you know, community and and belonging. And I think once you get someone in that environment, the training process is easy. There's always 10 days of training, depending, you know, what you're doing, whether it's pre-opening or you're on board. And then after that, there's a shadow process. Once people, you know, get that, they're ready to go. And then to me, it's it's almost a backwards piece. Once you, they're trained in the basics, it's, it's starting to learn from them. They tell you what's wrong. They tell you what's better. That's like the idea of if you have a property waiting to do the landscaping till after someone starts using it to see where people are actually walking and having the paths follow that. That's essentially what that that is. So the, the pay and the benefits you mentioned is something that's very important to attract and retain the best talent. So talk to us about how you, how you pay, like what your living wages are versus minimum wage, et cetera. Yeah, so it's important. It's important to me because, again, that's really being an operations person at heart. That's what I do, right? I, I, I'm a leader of people. And I, I take that pretty heavy and, and making sure that I'm eliminating barriers for folks. So I, and I say that because the dean had health and medical benefits for their staff before Ash did, did as a company. And that's how important it was to me when we did this because we were just starting up and we we're like, well, like, no, that's, that's not what we're going to do here. And even when we started at the Dean, I think minimum wage at the time in Ryan was like nine change. And I did a labor analysis of the city and I seen one of the larger branded hotels, which I, I won't name, you know, hiring housekeepers at $9.92. And I thought to myself, wow, from a kid who grew up in a kitchen, was making more than that 10 years. It almost hurts me, like it, it, like even now. So that time we, we started hiring everybody at 12. And that was before the, the real living wage conversation started. And we've built it since then. Most of our properties now are at, at the starting wage is the living wage, which is $15 an hour, which we can argue that's really a living wage. Certainly people figure out how to live off of it. I don't know if it's quite the living wage, but at this point for our hotels being so small and stuff, you know, that was really being so small and stuff, you know, that was really, you know, the best I could do at the moment was, you know, what we're going to start everybody housekeeping front desk. It's all the same pay scale, right? You're, I don't want to call it classism, but there's no like physical labor versus you know, desk labor. I don't, I don't see them different. So everybody starts with that and everybody starts with medical, dental, you know, vision, two weeks vacation after their first year, they accrue in their first year, they accrue um, PTO time. So they accrue five days sick and, and five days personal. That's on top of that vacation time. So again, just really thinking of people and in personal days, people shouldn't take a vacation day to have to go do something personal, right? It's not vacation. So you just wanted to make sure that people had that. New Orleans is the last. We brought a lot of people back from furlough. Currently, they're at 14, but all the people we brought back will be ready for. They'll have you know, made their, their year after that. And they'll all get the living wage adjustment at that point. And I think what I want to point out is you mentioned that your living wage at the hotel in New Orleans is $14. And Louisiana is actually one of only five states in the entire country that has no state level minimum wage, which means that labor in the state has a default back to the federal minimum, which is still $7.25. So you're nearly double what I'm, I'm sure their your competition is paying people. Yeah. Yeah. When we've done it, we pay double time for holidays. I, I don't know. 
We'll, we'll get to the 15 there. It's, it's the right thing to do. We'll always figure out a way to make money. We'll always figure out a way to keep our buildings. We'll always figure out a way to have distributions. We'll always figure out a way to have a great GOP flow through. It, it'll get figured out. And in turn, we'll have an amazing place with amazing ambassadors. And we'll be able to you know, support the communities that we live in and that we make money. And I think and also tied to that is, as of now, Louisiana, only about 35% of the population is fully vaccinated versus about 50% across the United States. What COVID protocols have you put into place internally to protect your staff from those particular challenges that they'll have to do their jobs? Yeah, super, super interesting. When COVID happened and, and having hotels on, on the East Coast, the Midwest and South and watching how communities behave differently, how labor behaved differently, how states behaved differently was something that was really difficult to deal with. New Orleans in, in many ways was yeah, probably the toughest of all to deal with. There are just so many layers to the onion, right? There's the South and the way that the South reacts, there's labor, and it's very different there. You know, labor there is, is, is still very complacent than it is in most other places. Bigger demographics there, you know, social demographics, a lot of people who, whether it's because of ethnicity or, or, or religion, didn't want to get you know, vaccinated. So it was really interesting for me to start to peel back the layers of the onion to truly understand why people weren't or not. For us, it was it was the basics. It was the sanitizer. It was the mask wearing. It was the temperature checks. Also, the electrostatic sprayers were a big piece at first to make sure everything was, um, you know, funny story about, I'm going to, I'm going to sidetrack here, but for the electrostatic sprayers, there was a time where Every hotel wanted one and nobody could get them. And um, if you're from Providence, you understand the, the phrase, I know a guy, right? Because that's, you know. That, that's just um, like Brooklyn as well. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. And really, I was able to have some pulled off the back of a UPS truck that was out going out for delivery to someone else to get them to our hotels just because of, not because you know a guy, but really because of longstanding relationships that I made with vendors over time and, and those relationships that are valued. Because um, again, they're people, and we're in a people business, and, and, and they're no different. They don't get treated differently than my uh, workers or our guests, right? Um, and I was able to get that equipment. You know, it's still it's still pretty crazy. I think we, we're dealing with COVID and COVID outbreaks. You know, I think we probably dealt with the most of them in New Orleans. Detroit was slow. Michigan was slow. It's very different. Detroit is not Michigan. So there's a bunch of different thought processes there. But the same way that New York City isn't New York State, and you can go on and on and on and on. Right, right. The urban versus suburban areas. And I think you, you dealt with that. You dealt with that too. But Detroit, we had a pretty good vaccination rate there. Providence, we had folks that were just lined up. Even when they couldn't get the vaccination, because they were doing it at the convention center across from the hotel, and people would just go at like five o'clock. They'd be like, we got extra, and then literally take them by age group. So we had half the hotel vaccinated before they were even the age allowed because people were ready to do it. In New Orleans, we still have a handful of people who are, whether they're afraid to, whether they were someone who didn't grow up with a flu shot, and maybe that's because it could be because of religion. Maybe it's because they didn't grow up with health and medical benefits and didn't see a doctor on a regular basis, didn't have access to that. Now they're, they don't trust, you know, and there's a lot of people who still don't trust government, you know, and they don't trust media. So it's interesting. I think that's, I get caught up in it a lot because I'm constantly like trying to layer those that emotional intelligence to really figure out why people are doing things, what are their behaviors, what are their behavior patterns, and why? How can I influence them in a good way? Let me ask you, so you mentioned some of those uh, peeling the layers of the, uh, the onion that 
that is New Orleans. And have you had any challenges with your staff handling or, or with guests that may not have wanted to comply with the rules that you had set out, particularly in a state where the dynamic I would imagine is that the staff is generally black and brown and your guests are probably white. And there's tones of slavery and the repercussions of that after. So what is that like versus, say, Detroit or Providence? It's funny. New Orleans was very respectful. The guests who came to Hotel Peter and Paul, and maybe because they walk up to a place that's to me is still mind-blowing and amazing, and they walk up there, and, and, and maybe that puts them in check. Maybe it's, the, maybe it's the price point they pay. They don't pay too much, so they don't feel too privileged, but they pay enough where they're looking to enjoy their money's worth. But New Orleans, we thought, oh boy, here we go. New Orleans, the guests have been wonderful. Wonderful there. Detroit, Detroit's, Detroit's a great city. Like I said, it's a second home to me. And again, people there have been pretty wonderful as well. I think once FMB outlets started to open up and things started to open up, Detroit really, their feet of market is the suburbs. So it's everybody coming in for, you know, the Fox Theater or something, Little Caesars, a game. I think once the food and beverage operations opened up, it became a little bit more. You know, one, because we have so many, so many people come in, it became a little bit more to, to deal with folks who didn't want to abide. But by the time, you know, we got to not abiding, there weren't really a ton of guests coming through. We've, we've kept our hotels open, but it was a ghost town for, for a long time for everyone. So it was just the opening up. Providence was a little bit different. I think Providence is where we had the toughest time. Interesting. Okay. With guests. I'm on the board of directors for Rhode Island Hospitality, and we've done a, a bunch of programs there. Now we have stuff, Be Kind, really, stuff with the labor shortage, and people wanting to come out, and maybe that's summertime in New England, and everybody's coming in. We always complain in, in Rhode Island about why the highway's backed up with all the New York license plates. It's like a, it's like a joke, but because of Newport and because of Providence and, and, and the schools and stuff, we've seen a lot of people come back, and, and that's probably where we've had the, the toughest time. So you'd think New Orleans... No, I think, you know, I think Providence, you know, an Ivy League city is really, you know, the biggest handful and still continues to be. And I'm guessing that's something that predates the pandemic and will continue on after the pandemic as well. <laughs> the hardest, you know, the hardest to tell the manager is probably Detroit. Detroit can, Detroit can still be a, um, a tough in having so many food and beverage options. And like I, I said earlier, Candy Bar a giant draw. It's it's a giant draw, but it's so small that it, it really does feel inclusive. And then you have, you can exclude people very quickly just by number of seats. So really making sure that we put in a reservation process and stuff like that. So yeah, no, I grew up in Providence. So again, as crazy as it ever gets, it still, it feels very, you know, very warm, something I know already. It doesn't phase me too much. Good. And then you mentioned that uh, you have the three hotels, you have Baltimore, you have an additional one coming on as well. So in terms of employees, what would you say are the skills that you value the most? Because I know you mentioned problem solving, being able to think outside of the box. What else would you say you value in employees? Creativity. I, I like. I want people who are from the neighborhood. I don't, I don't want people who drive in and out to work because then they're not part of it. And I think and interesting people, interesting backgrounds, right? Because I think when someone is interesting, the guests find them interesting. Um, like I mentioned before, was the hairdresser, the DJ, the drag performer, who's actually getting his master's degree at Johnson Wales at the time. You know, those are the type of people you look for. If this hotel is in a certain community, um, I want the folks from that community working there, and I want the interesting folks from that community working there again because they they open up the city. And they become ambassadors of their neighborhoods and ambassadors of the hotel. So certainly managers and, and, and folks is a little bit different of a, of a skill set there. You know, I, I do like hospitality focused people. When it comes to folks who are, you know, working um, and even even the, the laborist jobs, I want people from the community. I want them to say, hey, you know what? 
This is this place is in my neighborhood. This place is in the neighborhood adjacent. I do go to this neighborhood and, you know, I want to work there. And in turn, you know, it's, it's a great place to work for me. Perfect. My last question. And listeners, if they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Um, it's Anthony at ashnyc.com. Perfect. Okay. So thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast. Uh, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever it is that you listen. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team and Michael Graves, and many of our spectacular guests like Anthony on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, seven tips on how to stand out in your field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach beyond uh, the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create to help build homes and communities for others. Today, Anthony and I have made donations to the Rhode Island Special Olympics. I encourage you, our listeners, to support um, this worthwhile uh, cause as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building by Michael Graves.